Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Gail Wilkinson, who's the founder and managing partner at White Lies, a, state, a seed stage venture fund and angel community investing in the work revolution. Gail had led $65 million in early stage deals across 80 plus startups and experience prior to VC included uh, uh, founding two field startups, uh, consulting for new product launches for Nielsen and Strategies Orbits. Wilkinson uh, had uh, received a BBA with honors from Notre Dame and MBA with honors from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Welcome to the show, Gil. Thanks for having me, Rohit. Awesome. So, uh, you know, you uh, uh, had worked in strategy with Orbits and uh, you had also, you know, uh, uh, gone to B school. How how did you get into this uh, world of venture capital and startups? So I've always loved startups. Um, you know, I did I did some startup work on the side while I was at Orbitz, and then um, focused only on startups when I was at Booth. And when I graduated in 2012, hadn't really thought about venture, but had the opportunity to start an organization called Irish Angels, which um, was in venture capital. So thinking about um, you know. Starting a business to help others start businesses was uh, really cool. Got it, got it. And uh, you know, what were some of some some of your learnings with Orbits and uh, with uh, with uh, Booth Business School? What 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 did you learn from from these uh, institutions? I loved working at Orbits because of the tech component. Everything moved really fast, and I had a cross functional role where I got to work with people from all over the company. So that was really cool to start to connect the dots and see how business was um, worked and how, how to grow. And then in, uh, in, at Booth, as I mentioned, I really just focused on startups, um, started a number of things, tested a bunch of stuff, met a lot of people. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it was, it was a good time to explore enough to know that startups really what I should be focused on personally. I really love building and helping other people. Mm, got it. And and what what were the two? You know, uh, you you uh, had a you know failed startup. What was the venture all about? The first one was a business called What College Forgot. It was about all the stuff you don't learn as an undergrad that you need to know to succeed in the real world. And right. that failed because it wasn't focused enough and didn't have a revenue model um, initially. And then the second one was called Hire Bright, and that was a, uh, a hiring platform for students to land growth roles. And that one um, didn't work out just based on, you know, goals of the founding team differed quite a bit. Okay, the first one was called What College Forgot, and I ran that um, as a way to help people learn about all the things that you don't learn in college that you need to know to succeed in the real world, like career development and renting an apartment and you know, personal finance, for example. That failed because I didn't have a revenue model right off the bat and I wasn't focused enough. Um, the second one that I started was during business school and that was a hiring platform that I worked on for you know part of my time at business school, but that one didn't work out either. And so then that's when I made the transition into venture capital. Got it. And, and what, was, what was your first angel investment all about? It was in 2016. I invested in a friend's company. Um, it was a tech-enabled platform here in Chicago. Okay. That's, that's, that's super interesting. And, uh, you know, especially when it comes to angel investing, you know, uh, how, do you, how do you get to identify, you know, the right opportunities to invest in? Uh, did you, did you, uh, you know, decide on, on a specific sector and invest into, into those startups? 
Yeah, I think today I have more, much more of a strategy. But if I rewind back to 2016, I really hadn't thought about doing personal angel investment. Yes, I was helping others angel invest um, as part of Irish Angels. But I think this is a really important point that um, anybody can be an angel investor as long as, um, you know, either they're doing a direct investment and there, there are fewer than 30 people who are not accredited or you are an accredited investor and then you can invest in a number of different ways into startups. So um, I think this idea of providing access is something that's always been important to me because once I made that first investment, I realized that I, you know, I wanted to do a lot more of it to make sure I had a portfolio style approach. And so now I've done 45 personal angel deals and that, that first one's actually the only one that failed. <laughs> and I will invest in that founder again, but she didn't have product market fit after a number of years. So, um, you know, it's all about getting started if you are interested in angel investing. Got it. Interesting. And, uh, and you know, how, how many startups uh, should one invest into to build a, you know, diversified angel portfolio, especially for those listeners who still, you know, thinking about doing the first angel investment? I think you should do about 30 deals over five to six years. So you're looking at about five to six deals a year to get to the point where you have a portfolio. Um, and the minimum is three and the maximum is kind of 10. So you want to be somewhere in that three to 10 range. Most people should do five or six. Um, and the, I think another thing that's important is figuring out upfront, how much do you want to, and can you invest each year? You might make $150,000. Um, and so you've got 10,000 a year that you want us to invest. You can invest that through our angel group because we allow non-accredited let's say you make 250,000 and you want to invest 50,000 a year. Um, and so you might do five deals at 10,000 each. Like there's a number of ways to do this, but your two main inputs are how much can you invest that year and how many deals do you want to do that year? And what that does is it creates a formula for you to know, okay, I'm going to do five deals this year at $5,000 each. And it sets you up to have a strategy that you can then execute on. Got it. Interesting. And, uh, you know, before the call, we, we did, uh, you know, talk about the angel community at White Lies. Uh, and, and you mentioned about, uh, you know, uh, the, the non-accredited investors who could also invest. Um, how, how is that possible? You know, uh, can, can non-accredited investors uh, invest in, into angel investments? And or should they be a U.S. citizen to, in order to invest into these companies? There are two ways to invest as non, non-accredited. And I, I'm not as familiar um, in terms of, you know, if you have to be a U.S. citizen on this first one, no. any any founder can take up to thirty checks from um, directly from non-accredited individuals. They just have to report that. Okay. So that's that's kind of a, you know your friends and family can have access to it and don't necessarily have to be accredited. Um, the other way that non-accredited investors can participate is via crowdfunding. And so, Vitalize Angels, for example, is an angel network where we find the deals, we, we, sort, we screen the deals, we do the due diligence, um, we, we try and make it easier for our angels to make decisions. But um, when you invest through us, our partner is WeFunder. So that's a crowdfunding site. It's a community round site. And that means that the founder has to go through some additional steps with the SEC. This is a government entity that regulates this stuff to make sure that they're following the rules. Um, so that it is deemed safe for non-accredited investors to participate via crowdfunding. But from our perspective, we think that there should be more 
you know, more assistance from VCs like us, which is why we created our angel group and allow both accredited and non-accredited investors to participate. Interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you had mentioned about, uh, you know, uh, investing uh, a low amount of money into, into, uh, into these companies. And do you think investing as low as thousand, thousand pounds or thousand dollars uh, is something people should start off with, especially because it, it's such a high risky bet, you know, investing into cryptos and angel investing, uh, you know, what would be the minimum uh, amount, uh, you know, uh, somebody should invest into, into tech startups? For, for us, it's $1,000. Um, so I think I think a good starter range for people is between $1,000 and $5,000 a deal. Like I, I still today mostly do $5,000 a deal okay. because I would rather have higher volume. Um, you know, and once you start doing higher amounts, it's harder to get the portfolio unless you, you know, all of a sudden make way more money. Mm. Um, and it, it can be tough, right? Because you might have a really, what you think is a really interesting one come through and you're like, I want to put more money in. Um, I did that at the end of the year and it, it's already shutting down. And so it's a good lesson to me that um, it's more about access to the deals. It's more about putting a little bit in. And if I am regimented in my approach and I make sure that I hit my, my number of deals every year and I do the same amount into each, the, the portfolio theory is at least on the table to occur. And what portfolio theory is, is you have enough shots on goal so that a handful of them will return for everything, for, for the entire amount of money that you've deployed, even in the ones that lost. Um, and so like, I've just learned enough personal lessons where it's like, the more regimented I am, the better. And the more variety that I have, the better um, to make sure that I don't put all my eggs in one basket. Today, I have an interesting stat for you. Did you note that the founder of Beautiful Lives Increase the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Got it. And, and you know, uh, do, you, do you have a reserve allocation for, you know, for putting money on the, on the follow-up rounds like, yeah, what if there's an angel investment, which is, uh, you know, uh, being able to raise investments? So do you, do you do you suggest angel investors keep a reserve allocation to double down on those investments which are really working? Yeah, there's a spectrum in terms of strategy here. So one end of the spectrum is never do any follow-ons. Okay. And the other one is follow-on and everything. Right. And in, in the fund that I run, I fall into the middle. But in my own personal angel investment, over time, I'm much closer to the hardly, I hardly ever do follow on checks personally, because, um, you know, the, the biggest upside comes the earlier that you invest mm-hmm. and every subsequent round companies that are doing well, the valuation is much higher. And therefore, you know, your upside is more limited than it was before, but there's more certainty because you have more information in those later rounds. So I share this because, you know, each of us can have a different approach here. And it all depends on what your personal goals are about, you know, how, what kind of returns do you want? Um, how do you want to spend your money? How many deals do you want in your portfolio? And that's an, the follow-on strategy is a more um, advanced point about angel investing, but it is something to consider before you you deploy a lot of capital. So for me, I will look at all the follow-on opportunities and stuff I've already done. Um, but so far, you know, in the last year or so, like 
I've passed on everyone that's come through. I'm happy that I'm in a lot of these deals early because they're doing well. Um, but I would rather save that 5k and put it into another company that gives me even more upside risk, I think. So, so, so interesting. And, uh, you know, we, we had Mac, uh, Conwell from, from Rarebee who came on the podcast, uh, in episode number 197, uh, you're also an LP at Rarebee Ventures, you know, um, so how, how do you, you know, get to decide to be an LP and back, uh, you know, VCs, uh, in, in, in yeah. Yeah. Um, so Mac was, I think the first GP that I backed, um, I've done five or six small investments into funds and, and Mac was one of those. So, um, just, just like everybody, you know, I'm not doing angel investing full time. So I don't spend a lot of time on it. When I invest out of Vitalize's fund, I spend a ton of time on these deals. Um, it's having multiple conversations, doing a lot of diligence. Our, our team does more diligence. We do reference checks and background checks. And we're trying to really understand, can this thing return our institutional and high net worth individual and family office limited partners capital and then some. So I have, I have a job to do when I do my, my institutional investment out of the VC fund. It's not like that when I'm an angel investor. So when I'm an angel investor, I might make a decision very, very fast with, with much more limited information than I make um, as a fiduciary on behalf of my limited partners. And so what I've realized over time is um, making some small bets into funds, if I have access to them, is actually a really good option for um, not, not just me, but all of us that have limited time and want to deploy small amounts of money. So I wanted to, to test that theory. Um, and I invested in uh, Mac and a number of other GPs who don't invest in the exact same type of deals that I do. So, so Mac doesn't just do future of work like, um, like Vitalize, which means there's a different, um, different set of companies that I will see through that and through some of the other ones that I've done. Um, and then obviously I've invested in my fund quite a bit. So it's just a way to diversify. I've got this pool of direct deals and then I've got, a hand, I've got the six funds that I've invested in. We are one of them and then five other funds. Um, so with Mac, you know, I love his approach. I think he, um, he does great deals. I've worked with him on one deal before um, that was a syndicate deal. It wasn't a fund deal. And I got to see how he worked. And I thought, you know, I would really love to, to back him because I think he's going to find stuff that I don't find. And he knows stuff that I don't know. Um, and what that does is it helps me to, you know, potentially increase my returns because I'm broadening my exposure in that manner. Interesting. And, uh, you know, did you have a mindset change when you went from an angel to become a VC at White Lays? So I actually, um, you know, I was leading angel deals at Irish Angels for uh, three years before I did my first angel deal. And I did my first VC deal around the time that uh, maybe I'd only done like three or four personal angel deals. So like, I kind of did it all in a, in a similar timeline. Um, I wasn't like, there are a lot of G, GPs or VCs who did a ton of angel investing, then they moved into this seat. I, I was the opposite. I mean, I left business school a ton of loans, so it took me a long time to even have money to deploy into angel investment. Um, and so it, it's, I've developed my angel investing personal thesis and strategy at the same time that I have been figuring out how to run a venture shop, to be honest with you. <laughs> Very interesting. And, uh, you know, what does the decision-making process look like uh, when you are looking into investing into, into white lays? Uh, do, you, do you have a, 
multiple partners with whom you decide or is it uh, you know uh, just one person who makes an anonymous decision sure in in fund one i was a solo gp but in fund two carolyn caston is is my investment partner so when we see something that's interesting um caroline and i along with our associates anand and john will do due diligence on the deal you know we we really think about the market opportunity the competition the product is it really great uh, we think about, is this a painkiller and not just a vitamin? I think that's one of the biggest problems with a lot of businesses out there is like, does a company really, really need to buy this? Um, and then, you know, it's really understanding what, what is the potential upside for this company? Can the founder sell? Can the founder build a team around them? Um, what, what do we believe the ability to execute on this great vision is? And so we're doing all this due diligence to make our best assessment of that. And we want to make sure it fits our criteria, which is the work revolution, people first, data-driven, really big ideas that transform how work is done today. And the fund invests at the seed stage in that area. And our angel group invests in stuff that's too early for the fund. So mostly pre-seed stage in the work revolution. Um, so if all that stuff makes sense, then we will have an investment committee meeting um, where we will you know, kind of dig 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 in really deep to the learnings that we have see if there's any follow-ups and then we'll ultimately vote on it caroline and i both have to vote yes to invest interesting and especially when it comes to partnerships you know how, how do you how do you create an environment of safety where you know both partners can can discuss and debate freely about you know about the investments you want to make yeah i think um this is an important point for all all VC firms and probably all investment firms is, is having that ability to, to be able to speak and communicate freely and have the trust. Um, so we actually do it up front. Uh, Caroline is out right now on maternity leave, but I talked with John and um, Anand today on a deal call. And I, we're lucky, right? Because we've been in the market now for 10 years, or I've, I've been a VC for 10 years. So I have a lot of deal flow. I have a lot of good deal flow. When I first started, it was really hard to find any deal that was investable. And now I have to pass on stuff that is really great. Awesome VCs are involved. You know, it looks good in terms of revenue. We like it, all that stuff. And we still have to pass sometimes because we only have 30, 35 spots in our fund. And right. they have to go to the ones that we think are the absolute best for our LPs and for us and for our portfolio construction. So that means... They were saying no to a lot of deals. So I told John and Anand today, look, before we get even get into due diligence, do you love the founder and do you love the space? And do we think based on that initial call that there's something magical about that deal that, that makes us believe it can be a huge returner? If, if any of those three things is not there, if you feel paused about the founder, if you're like, oh, I don't really love this space or whatever you know, there's really nothing to point to in terms of the, the magic, you should probably pass on it. Um, so that means anything that makes it to the investment committee, we already would have talked on multiple deal calls. You know, she, Caroline would know what I think. I would know what Caroline thinks. We know what John and Anand think. And we all want to be aligned around the fact that we think it's um, a really exciting space. We think it's an awesome founder set. And we think that there's magic there. Um, today, one of one of us brought a deal in, and you know, I have to ask the question: like, do you love this space? Because right. I don't really love the space, but um, you know, John said he did, and I was like, great, okay, I want you to like convince me. You have to have conviction around this, so like anybody on the team can convince the others, um, but we go into it. We're early in the process on this deal. We're eyes wide open as to what everybody thinks about it, because now John knows 
that I'm not really keen on that space. And if he really wants to put the time in to make that one happen, he's going to have a lot of work to do to, to and, and vice versa. If, if I found one that Caroline was not really excited about, I would have a lot of work to do to convince her. And, and that's how it should be because, um, you know, oftentimes the best deals are ones where not everybody sees it or not everybody loves it. So having that ability to bring forward stuff that um, it's a little trickier. It's not, it's not easy for everybody to see can actually be a really great investment. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM Uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, you, you build a team around white lies. How, how do you approach internal talent building so that the next generation of uh, VCs could come over and build the, build the, uh, take, the take the fund forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the hardest thing in running a small fund is having enough money to pay everybody. So the way that VC funds work is you typically make two to two and a half percent in a fee on the amount that you're raising in your, your current fund. And then um, typically less than that. So let's say one to maybe two percent of what was deployed in earlier funds. So for, for a small fund, um, you don't have a lot of operating budget and you have a lot of needs. So you need to have associates and you need to have portfolio company assistance and administrative and operations help and obviously investment partners. Plus you have a lot of other um, operating expenses that a fund needs to think about. From that perspective, it's thinking about, okay, how do we staff everything appropriately? And the way that I've um, developed my thesis around this is you, you really want to work with people in a part-time capacity And ideally, once you have enough revenue, and if they're a fit, and they love what our fund is doing, and they're adding a lot of value, we, we really want to work with them, we bring them on. Um, like right now, I'm hoping to have more revenue to bring on, on some more of our part-time people, because we have a lot of great part-time people right now. Um, but it's just a question of how do we how do we find that revenue? And then once they're on the team, it's working with them to create development plans and, and understand what's the next step in the firm. Because um, I, I'm of the mindset that we want to invest long-term into our team and make sure that everybody has the opportunity to really grow and, and get upside in what we're doing. Got it. And uh, you, you mentioned about, you know, part-timers as well. I've seen a lot of preschool graduates, you know, uh, interning at VC firms. Uh, but do you, uh, you know, what, what are some of the signals of people, you know, whom you feel, could succeed well in venture capital since you've been in the in the VC space uh, for close to a decade now. Yeah, the best candidates are those who are entrepreneurial. Um, they're problem solvers. They can handle a lot of stuff coming at them and they're they're super organized. So, you know, in any given week, if you're an associate, you might be doing diligence on two deals. You might have 10 deal calls. You might be sourcing a new set of deals to set up next week's 10 deal calls. You might be doing a market research report and you might be doing a special um, project on like upgrading the quarterly limited partner reporting. So you have like, all these things going on. 
And um, the best employees are those, or the best team members are those who can take each one of those and own it and figure out, okay, how do I gather information? How do I make this better? How do I execute? How do I move the ball forward to get to the end zone and actually complete the project without having my manager or the head of the firm have to tell me every step of the way? And, and if we dial that back, that means that these individuals are um, extremely organized. They, um, they're self-starters, so they don't need um, a lot of that guidance. They can figure it out and run something to fruition on their own. And they're problem solvers. You know, they're, they're out there really paying attention to what's going on and taking those lessons so that that can help them get to the next stage quickly. And they typically, they also like to read and get information. So it's, it's tough when you're getting into venture because there's a lot of content, but you really have to spend time and read a lot of it and engage with it and go to events. And Mm -hmm. if, if you don't like to network or you don't like to read, VC can be a pretty tough, um, place to live unless, you know, you, maybe you find an ops role where it's more internally focused. Interesting. And, you know, I've seen you, you're pretty active on Twitter, you know, how, how do you use uh, Twitter to, uh, to network and to, you know, source out deals, uh, any, any uh, lessons for, for people who are trying to, you know, build their presence on Twitter? For, for anybody who wants to build a personal brand, it's thinking about what do you want to stand for? What, how do you want to focus? What do you want to be known for? Um, and so for, for me personally, it's, I want, I want to do good deals. I want to be known for the work revolution or future of work. Um, I want to be known as a VC who is helping increase access to the asset class. I want to be a VC who is known for helping founders. So if you pay attention to any of the stuff that I do, most of it is, is helping founders. Um, it's helping people get into VC. It's, it's increasing access to angels. It's some DEI stuff. It's future work stuff. So I never really stray outside of that. So get really clear on what you want to focus on. And then my, my trick is that every day I just tweet something that came up. Um, you know, if I have a call with a founder and they have a question, if I have uh, um, like this podcast with you, maybe something will come up where it's like, oh, this, is, this question that Rohit asked was really interesting. And I want to share what he said or what I, how I answered. And then that can sometimes be really interesting because it's, it's what's actually happening in my life that I tweet about my work life that I tweet about. Um, so I only spend somewhere between five and 20 minutes on Twitter a day to mm. a few minutes to tweet something. And then, you know, I like to retweet a few things. I like to engage on a few things and, and read. So, you know, I, I wish I had more time than 20 minutes, but that's kind of where I typically max out. And then um, the other thing I will mention is, don't try to do everything all at once. My initial plan was to write a blog a week and to do a podcast a week and to do you know two things on Twitter a day and one thing on LinkedIn a day. Well, what I actually could do every day, every day or for the long term was the one one Twitter a day. Yeah, and that worked. Um, so start small and pick the one channel and do it once a day or once a week or whatever your number is. And just be really regular with it and focus on what you set out to focus on. And I think you'll start to see the results from it. Interesting. And, you know, you recently tweeted that uh, the only 30% women who are uh, partners in VC VC fund, um, you know, what are some of the ways in which, you know, women can come more uh, into the VC world and become, you know, uh, in in the leadership positions in, in these VC firms? We don't talk about this enough. Um, I, I truly believe that 
we start to see more equity in financing. This means that more underrepresented people get access to financing and we move away from these crazy low numbers where only 2% of funding goes to women and only 2% of funding goes to African-Americans and less than 2% goes to, you know, Latinx community. I mean, these, these numbers are really, really dismal. What that means is we have to take a look at who's writing checks. I believe that the more women, the more people of color, the more, you know, the more underrepresented check writers we get around the table, we start to see a difference in terms of the founders who are getting money. And then there's this long-term flywheel effect. The more founders who get money today and they have exit events, and then they reinvest it into people that look like them. And then we start to see over time, um, once again, just more equity. So I urge all women and anybody who identifies as underrepresented, if they feel, if you feel like you have not been offered a seat at the table, I'm trying to change that. And so at Vitalize, we welcome everybody. We have 400 people in our group. 70% of our 400 investors are underrepresented check writers. Um, we think that's really important. Founders want it. It's a smart business move, but nobody else is doing it because of this. Limited partners want to invest in the same networks because it's safe. Okay. And I think there's tons of alpha in our group because we have an amazing group of talented people who don't look the same as what the Silicon Valley type is. Now, we have some amazing people from Silicon Valley. San Francisco is one of our top three cities represented. It should be. But, you know, we look very different than everybody else. And we're trying to prove that, you know, founders of the future, they want this. There's going to be a lot of upside in what we're doing. And we want to create wealth opportunities for everybody to then be able to, once again, put it back into their communities. Um, so it's just, a, it's just a call to action for people who do feel like, you know, it's not for me. Um, there's a reason for that. We've been conditioned to believe that over time, that it is for a certain type of person. Nice. Um, but I think it's changing and I, we welcome everybody to join. Got it. And, um, you know, you mentioned Vitalize, you've been, uh, uh, you know, building the company. What, where do you see your, uh, you know, the, the firm the next 20 years? What, what sort of firm do you want to build uh, so that, you know, it's there for the long term? We want to have a VC firm that's really approachable. And I think Justin does a great job. He, he manages our content and our marketing. And then Larissa manages our community. And as a team, we really care about increasing access and being approachable. Um, we, we want to provide educational opportunities and create ways of allowing more people to invest and getting more dollars to founders. So it's creating impact through outcomes, um, but it starts with being approachable. Um, and if we're successful, you know, by the time we fast forward 20 years from now, we will have helped thousands of people write their first angel checks. We will have helped dozens of people hopefully from underrepresented backgrounds, get into venture, get into limited partner seats. We will have helped, you know, hundreds of founders, many of whom are underrepresented, raise money, sometimes is the only institution on their cap table at, at the first check. Um, and the goal is that a lot of those folks that we've helped kind of when nobody else would, or when not that many others would, um, are now in a position where they can help others. So once again, it's that flywheel effect that we're trying to see. And we're not the only firm doing this. There's lots of firms, thankfully, that are doing more and more now. Um, and we think that's really important, but we, we don't see as much movement in it. And that's why we really want to 
just advocate that everybody should consider this if they are interested at all. Got it. And uh, uh, you, you've also been part, uh, part of Kaufman Fellowship. Uh, uh, are there any fellowships or uh, your experience with Kaufman, which, you know, you, you want to share with listeners who want to get into, uh, uh, you know, VC firms and want to build a career in that? Are they, uh, you know, what are your recommendations? Yeah, I've done Kaufman and Recast um, Operator, which is now Coolwater and Sutton. And then my partner, I think, is going to do Plexo soon. So there's a lot of these communities. Um, my suggestion is for anybody that's interested in getting into VC or any new VC, these communities are extremely helpful because they, they help you to connect on a relational level with others in the industry. Um, and that's, that's really a lifeblood of venture. And I think creating these new networks is going to be really important to help emerging managers and new VCs have the ability to actually like, you know, raise money and then make great investments. Um, so ab- absolutely, even if you create your own community where it's four or five others that meet once a month, do right. it because the community piece is really, really important in VC. Got it. Interesting. And I, I quickly want to the top three. What's a favorite business book? So I w- I'm going to plug the last one that I just finished. Um, it's called Living on Purpose. It's actually written by my executive coach. And I think it's, it's a... It's a uh, it's a pretty easy read, but it's all about, you know, learning how to feel it out and not figure it out and, and understanding that you're already good enough. And it reframes a lot of things that I, I've seen people struggle with. Um, so I, I highly recommend, it, recommend this book called Living on Purpose. Got it. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And if you could go back in time when you started White Lights, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done thing differently? Um, the one thing that I would do differently, (laughs) I would have thought a lot more before setting up some of my service providers, I think, um, and, you know, selecting online tools, just making sure that you're getting best in class of these service providers and, uh, and technology systems, because to change payroll and to change an attorney and to switch accountants and to you know have to redo all this stuff can be very painful. Um, and I recognize that now, and I wish I would have known better then to be really judicious in making those selections. All right, all right. And uh, do you have any favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Um, I think the n- newest ones that we're using that have been really good are Notion and Airtable. But we use we use a lot of tools, so obviously Slack is helpful. Um, and then there's some specialized VC ones, like we really like Visible. It's a tool for um, reporting. That's good. We use allocations to close our SPVs, and then Carta is our fund admin. So we have a lot of different tools that we're using. Um, that's really really important to have a nice tech stack. So it's it's a good question. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, we'll put down the show notes and. Uh, Gail, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about White Lies uh, and the Angel community? Yeah, we once again, we would invite anybody to join us. It's $149 a, m- a quarter um, to join. So you could join for one quarter and leave if you don't like it. We wanted to make it, once again, as accessible as possible. So you can go to vitalizeangels.com or you can check out um, Twitter. So my personal handle is BC at G-A-L-E-F-O-R-C-E-V-C. 
Um, and you can ping me there via direct message and um, I can get you more information on joining. Got it. We'll put that in our show notes. Uh, Gil, thank you so much for taking the time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Of course. Thanks, Rahit. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.